Hello again. Howdy. Hey, I'm Alan. I'm Brent. And we're back with another episode of A-B Testing. Does it have a number? Are we up to 87? We are. 87. Welcome to the 87th episode of A-B Testing. If this is your first time listening to A-B Testing... Uh, welcome. Then you, please you, go back to episode 80. You may want to back up. We've been diving into the modern testing principles. On You can read those on moderntesting.org. We've been spending, this is our sixth episode going through this, the seven principles. We'll hit the, the last one in two weeks, but this podcast in general is your guide, your gateway, your information center for... Uh, a lot of things about software testing, a lot of software engineering, uh, quality, and, of course, the aforementioned modern testing. Yes. And all that. <laughs> so that's the plan for today. Uh, if you'll uh, hit the fast forward button now, you can avoid our chit chat. Or since we don't work together anymore, this is our chance to catch up, too. So what's new with you, Mr. Jensen? Oh, um the biggest thing that's new is baseball season's over. Not for the professionals, for your children, I assume. Yeah, from my son. Although that reminds me, I need to sign him up for fall ball. I keep forgetting that. Do you want to stop and write yourself a note? Yeah, you actually. I, I, I'm totally going to do that. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, because if I miss the date, let's see. Okay, then. Yeah, talk amongst yourselves. The Bellevue, which is also called the Seattle Unity Office, because outside of the Seattle area, no one knows where Bellevue is. We are moving offices. We are vastly outgrown both the physical space and power and AC limits of our current space. So uh, another month or two, and we'll finally be in our new spot. Pretty excited about that. It'll be pretty and nice. Where are you going? Uh, six blocks away. We're going to Lincoln Square South. Oh, okay. Again, for the locals, everybody else, like, shut up and talk about modern testing. Lincoln Square, is that the same building you used to be in? No, no, south. It's uh, three blocks south on the, it's the newer one that went up on the corner of 4th and Bellevue Way. Again, more local trivia. Okay. We'll move on here. Has a lot of restaurants. Have they, put, have they put anything into that Toys R Us yet? No. The Toys R Us space is still available. No. Okay, so anyway, so anyway, I thought I uh, just because I was thinking about it on the way to work, I have a bit of a where is the weasel update. Oh, I'm. I mean, I'm not done. With- I was I was waiting for the song, but um, oh, we'll come back no. to that. We'll come back to that. But you weren't done. I forgot <laughs> yeah, yeah. that you just took a pause just, to to, yeah. to write notes on your phone, so that I can remember. We now return to a quick update from. Brent Jensen. Yeah, so the the next biggest thing that's happening is, uh, so my oldest has been home for the summer. He's got an apartment where he's he's going to move into his apartment on Saturday. In Pullman? In Pullman. He's already pre-warned things like he may not be home next summer. He may not come home for Thanksgiving. So I actually think, even though he's not willing to say this, and he may not know, but just because you know I've gone through the college experience, I actually think this is it. I think this is him actually moving out. That's congratulations on a successful early launch. Yeah, um, 
it's I, I hope I hope I and all of our listeners with children have the same experience with all of our kids. Yeah, no, I don't think I'm going to have the same. No, I can't. I can't wait. I can't wait to get rid of them. <laughs> You're like move out. They're obviously not avid listeners to the podcast. <laughs> no, no, but they have heard me tell them that as soon as as soon as the younger one goes to college, that uh, the house is being sold immediately, and we're not leaving a forwarding address, just a PO box. <laughs> that's you know that's not a bad strategy, <laughs> but you can mitigate it. Um, just you know, if you if you like where you live, you know, just change the locks. <laughs> thought about that. Thought about that, but I think it's better just to. Uh, actually, I don't like I, the house. Is fun. I like the house. It's a nice house. It's beautiful. Uh, I am. I have not adapted well to suburbia. No. We became suburban to get the kids in better schools and all that, but uh, I. I would like to live in this cookie cutter house. It's nice and it's big and the three car garage and lots of room and I have a huge home office and it's awesome. A great place for a dog and everything. That's cool. But I uh suburbia takes a tax on me. I need I need a neighborhood or a building with character that sometimes only a, a more urban environment can provide. Yeah. You and I are so far apart there. I can't even <laughs> see you from where I'm Brent, standing. Brent goes, I want, I want a house with so many acres. I don't even, I don't even know which direction my neighbors are. Yeah, that actually would be pretty sweet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, not cool for me. Not cool for me. If I want to go outside and run naked in my prairie. Oh I God, can do that. Oh God, confidence. Uh, could you move to Russia and do that? No. Okay. I don't want that happening within a thousand miles of me. <laughs> uh, too late. <laughs> All right. So yeah. So that's that's a that's a big deal. And then the next thing that I'm um, um, so school should start back up for me on August twenty. Oh, you gonna finally finish? You gonna go for it? Get the home stretch done? You know, I'll just I'll just submit to everyone on there. I just don't want to do it. <laughs> I want to be done with this thing, and I don't want to do one final burst of pain. Um, but yeah, so I'm kind of constantly flipping that coin in the air and picking it up and reflipping and picking it up and reflipping. Um. Yeah, it, it's it is the last time, but the idea of of going through another four months of all of my nights and weekends gone. Um, no pain, no gain. Yeah, but I am thinking. Of course, you've already got most of the gain. I am. Yeah, I have gotten all of the gain. <laughs> <laughs> that's the other thing too. Is, yeah, that's is the hard I'm part. so wired for for return on investment. Right. Yes. Um, and I, I, I am too old. I am too old, and um, not from the the weariness part. But I am at a stage in my career. No one will actually care about this degree. The only reason to do it is to be done. It's not going to get me a job in the future, right? Gotcha. It, it's not. It's it's. Uh, I've gotten what I wanted out of it. Yeah. Anyway, there cool. you go. So, 
School may start for me in August. It may also start for me in January. <laughs> All right, we'll see how things I will go. finish. Uh, I have six years from the start to finish, and I still think I have five or six semester starts left. <laughs> All right. Excellent. That's, now I'm done. Okay. A quick update of my fall travel schedule because it just got a little ridiculous. In fact, I just... In fact, I haven't sent the mail. I just made the choice last night uh, to turn down. I almost went to a conference in November because in Korea, and I really wanted to go there. But there's too much else going on. I'm heading off to Iceland next week. Cool. Shoot, is that next week? No, not the week after. And then uh, in October, I thought I was going someplace in September. End of September, uh, very beginning of October, over that weekend, heading down to Anaheim to give a workshop at Star West. Popping back up north, be home for about four days, heading down to Portland for a couple days to give a talk on modern testing and also a workshop at PNSQC, which is one of my favorite conferences. I think the size and caliber of presentations is usually pretty good. So I'm excited about that. In Later in October? No. Yeah, later in October. I'm home for like two weeks and then I'm going to Copenhagen and Helsinki on a work trip. Home for about three more weeks and heading to Sweden for a week for a work trip. And that should close out the Weasel 2018 travel schedule. I would have had to shove that two more weeks later, hit that Korea trip. But I was like, that's, I think it's enough. So doing that. So shall we? Do you have a sub in Korea or is that a customer? No, no. The Korea trip was uh, a conference uh, request, a speaking speaking request. Mm. And I thought about doing it because I, I actually I am trying to not speak at any test conferences in 2019. I may speak at, given the right opportunity, I'm trying to get out of, I don't know if I've talked to you about this before, I want to get out of Frank. the test, <laughs> I, I want to get out of the test conference speaking, except for rare occasions. I will always speak at Ministry of Test because it's like, uh, the test bashes because they're really good and the audience actually gets it. It's uh, it's a proper audience. But I I think I want to if I do more speaking, I will do it more at uh, development centered conferences. I think that's where where my mind and content is is when I'm improving software quality through better engineering and development practices. Uh, so I think I may start focusing more there when I speak and just speaking a lot less in general because uh, it's fun. And it's great when people clap at you and they ask you questions, you, you feel all validated and stuff. But uh, I think I want to focus my efforts elsewhere. I think I think that makes sense uh, based on my, my knowledge of you and your passions. I, I think you're done sort of teaching testers how to test. Yeah, right? exactly. It, it's kind of not where we're going with modern testing. I think it makes sense. To start you going through and say, okay, no, we need to start teaching devs how to test. Although I don't, I think that may be premature, quite honestly. Like I would suggest to you that, no, there's still value in you going to the test conferences and teaching testers how to lead. I think, yes, but I'm going to do that selectively. Test leadership conference, in New the one I did in New York, uh, that has some validity to it. Uh, test bash, as I mentioned before, uh, like an agile testing conference I could do. But 
again, I'm going to be much more selective. I'm, I'm, I am done talking to junior testers about how to get started in testing and test careers and all that stuff. I want to help. I, and I, I think a lot of what we need to do with testing is about being a modern tester. And someone just asked me on Twitter, Jim Holmes, hey, Jim, uh, about give a description of what it's like to be a modern tester. And I gave him the tautology answer of, well, actually, there's no such thing as a modern tester, but we do recognize, I spoke for you, that we do recognize that someone who leads the team towards following modern testing principles, I'm okay with calling them a modern tester. Yeah, it's, it's a leadership position, and it's a position that I am happily grooming uh, most or all people on my team towards, I mean, they're, they, they are, whether they know about modern testing principles or not, they're all kind of in a modern testing role right now. In terms of like the, the tipping point, I, I, I don't think we're done here on this topic until we get a sufficient amount of the test community to understand that the content after the semicolon in principle seven is not only a good thing, but something they should be working towards. Yeah, I want to. Wa- yeah, there is a lot of fear, and people see it as just like the controversial part. And we'll talk. We'll we'll have a good time talking about that in our next recording. Yep. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I think so. All right. So uh, shall we do this? Recording? Yes, we shall. We shall. And let me start. Let me start by saying that I slapped. I don't know if I cc'd you on this or not. Maybe I mentioned it in Slack. But I did slap a Creative Commons attribution share alike license on the modern testing principles to encourage people like it's totally yeah, do whatever you want with them. And so people have asked, like, can we copy these? Can we translate these? Yes. Attribute the source and do whatever you want. Change them for your team if you want. Attribute the source. It's totally fine. Took out the middleman. No longer need to ask. Just the license is there. Follow along. I would be careful about changing for the team, though. Right? Some people could change it and turn it into something in, that supports traditional then it will yeah it wouldn't really be modern testing anymore since that would attribute the original they would go oh okay you've you've changed this does the license give us the right to tell somebody to take it down if we discover no i don't want that i want people if somebody wants to bastardize i don't think they're going to all right i am a truster all right i'm a truster and an an enabler maybe that last doesn't sound right okay let me read to you modern testing principle number six. Oh my God, it's been so long since the podcast started. It's about freaking time. Okay. <laughs> number six, we use data. Um, you thought I was going to start, didn't you? Uh, you can read these at moderntesting.org. Number six, we use data extensively to deeply understand customer usage and then close the gaps between product hypothesis and business impact. What does that mean? Well, we'll dive into a deep one. Give, <laughs> give it to me. Uh, how would you, you know, paraphrase that back to me? What does that mean we do? Or, and we meaning teams following modern testing principles or teams delivering software in this way. Uh, why is, actually, let's talk about why. Why is this important? Before I go into that, That's a great question, and we will get to it. I want to read you a tweet that that, um, I don't know how I got it, follower of a follower of something. 
And I'm going to tell you, this is relevant. Okay. Okay. I am listening to your tweet reading. Exploratory testing is the key to high-quality software, semicolon. A highly intellectual and time-consuming activity often pushed off to end users. How do you feel about this tweet? It, and again, it's relevant. It is relevant, and I had a similar tweet uh, exchange that just continued on this morning about this same topic. It reeks of ignorance to me. I am not, well, first, it, I am not against exploratory testing. Total value in that. Using data to understand customer usage and to close the gaps and, and monitoring, et cetera, has nothing to do with shoving buggy software onto customers because you don't give a shit about them. And there is a, and I'm going to get on my soapbox because I'm pissed off about this because there are people in the industry, some with loud voices, who tweet about the, who tweet saying that, or speak saying that having customers, you know, letting customers find bugs, even if they're not actually finding them directly, it's just monitoring that's revealing these things, is a horrible thing and it's lazy. I had, I saw one author, I can't call him an author, one article writer, because in the internet, I guess everyone's an author. Mm -hmm. I had an article where they mentioned testing and production as a last quote, maybe I'm, maybe I'm not quoting, but as a last gasp resort to find bugs using the customers as testers. So, so, so anyway, that's where <laughs> yeah. I, uh, you triggered me because yep. I see a very big lack of understanding on how to use monitoring, how to use data, and how freaking valuable it is done right. And they think it's just this lazy thing teams do because they don't want to do testing where that's not the case at all. Was that the answer you wanted, or did I kind of go off it's on a tangent? It's really darn close. <laughs> you know, if, if if God, now I'm mad. <laughs> if this uh, tweeter had not used the words "pushed off" to end users, I would have had no problem. I actually, I, I totally agree with the first half of that. I mean, again, to be clear. Yeah, anyway, I'm going I'm to you talk, I'm going to breathe. Okay. It is not pushed off the end users. So the the principle talks about validating the hypothesis. Actually, the way we worded is better than the way I'm remembering how we worded. We close the gaps between the product hypothesis and the business impact. What does that mean? It means that when we wrote code, we had a theory around what is valuable. <clears throat> to be clear, we had a hypothesis. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, I'll just say yes. Right. <laughs> and well, no, I'm a data scientist in my world. Hypothesis is overloaded, but I'll just say yes because it's not worth going into. But uh, there are. For the record, I win. Yes. Uh, we have talked about this before. And that is the problem with ET. Now, is it the key to high-quality software? Probably. Now, but they're saying exploratory testing, okay? If this is something that's pushed off to an end user, then I'm going to say it's not exploratory testing anymore. 
It's actually this clever thing that we call using the product. <laughs> now, when a customer is using the product, is it highly intellectual? Maybe. Now, I will say most products, if it require highly intellectual, you probably have a usability problem. Like customers don't want to have to think too hard to get their solution solved. The time-consuming activity I also have a problem with. A traditionalist point of view is we try to pre we try to prevent harm to the customer, and we see it as as us. Again, it kind of is like the the champions the champions of quality slide that I keep referring to that Alan has produced. Right, we're a superhero team. Why are we letting that poor pregnant pregnant mom? take the bullet instead of us, we should be doing it. That's not actually the reality uh, today. I will, let me share a, a story. And then I'm going to go into a lot more on the, the what, why, and how. Yeah, after you, do you share your story? We'll comment. I actually have another tweet thread, highly related, I want to read to you. Okay. So. We should do a whole episode of Alan and Brent read tweets. <laughs> No, that actually, would be fun. No, <laughs> I'm already vetoing the idea. Anyway, go on. Story time. All right. It was my last week in Bing, and I'm sorry. I need to interrupt just for the uh, the new listeners. Bing is like Google. All right, go on. Asset. <laughs> <Ass hat. laughs> <laughs> All right. No, but Bing, Bing Google's things really well. It's fine. It works. Moving on. <laughs> It was my last my last week in Bing. Um, my uh, executive had set up an all hands on the Wednesday, and we had we had an individual from a partner team come in, and they did a presentation because we had worked we had done a, a co development project with that team, and it and finally shipped it. Well. Um, it was essentially shipping a, a Bing app in, in the, the Windows Store. Okay. At the same time, Google was shipping an app into the Windows Store. And, and this person told a story about how uh, we finally got this thing across the wire. Uh, and one of the things that they owned producing was a sort of um, a documentation on how to streamline and get things into the ecosystem. And they decided to produce a, um, a slide deck around what not to do. Now, they decided to use uh, the Google app as an example because a month prior, when they were first onboarding the Google app, they went through and they just found bugs everywhere. And um, much like I think this individual would have done is just mocked how crappy the software was. There were just bugs and bugs and bugs everywhere in the Google app. Okay. So, uh, again, fast forward a month later, she's, she's producing the streamlined thing and she wants to get screenshots of what not to do. So she's like, aha, I will load the Google app. And she loaded it. It, of course, had updated by that time. 
and she failed to find any of the bugs that she had found earlier. And she she actually commented on, yeah, it was amazing how how quick uh, they were. I do not understand how they did that. And I pulled her aside and I said, that is why Windows is having a problem. The traditional point of view, when you're in a world where you have a lot of software and your reaction time, like uh, when you and I grew up in this, com- in this company, Windows shipped every three years. Everything shipped every three years. Right. You, you did not – you had to get it right the first time. Did we ever? No. Do we have any idea of how much we got it right the first time that didn't matter? We have some. Mike, uh, I, episode or two ago, I talked about Kin, right? That was that done was, in That the, was last time, yeah. That was a traditionalist um, – that started off in a traditionalist model, um, right? And it was an unsuccessful product, right? Uh, I, would the company like to have had that time and that development money back? You bet. We talked multiple occasions about lean startup and the metric uh, that matters and the decision to pivot and persevere. Mm-hmm. This is what data brings to the party. Data allows you to understand what parts of your product is being used, what parts of the product isn't being used, Mm -hmm. and it allows you to scale the team by focusing your limited resources on the parts of the product that matter. Yes. 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 There is a 12-minute answer to your question, why? Data is critical to scale. Now, if you combine these with the other principles, right? So this the 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 individual I was talking about before was amazed that she couldn't find any of the bugs in Google. Right? I'm not uh, because I know Google instruments the crap out of everything. They worked through when they saw errors coming in. I know because I interviewed with Google years ago, right? They have a two-week release cycle. They go to, or at least back then, I don't know what they do today. Yeah, and again, not Google in general. This is Google apps, mobile apps in this case. No, but this was this was this was the Google philosophy all up. I don't know if it is still today, but back then, what they did is after the initial release, they had they would have an in, uh, an individual or a team of individuals after they did the release, they didn't start working on the next features. They the, after their release, they deep dove into the telemetry and go, what is the problem that we have now? They're even smarter. Right, because they they follow the practice of um, continuous integration, which means the number of bugs. So you 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 do end up shipping bugs, 
But when you do continuous integration, you ha- as long as you have the right monitoring in place, as long as you have the right telemetry, you end up turning around and fixing that bug the next day. Yeah, I think that's the piece that's missing from the mindset of people who see it as pushing things off. Uh, a quick story on data, then I want to read a tweet stream to you, is when I worked on the project that I refer to as the Stupid Science Project to make Android apps yep. on Windows Phone, uh, we had an offshore team of five maybe testers who we just gave them who would test apps just uh various android apps they'd load on they'd side load onto uh windows phone they'd run them report any bugs they found so we could figure out what was up with our system it got to a point very very quickly where we said actually just stop entering bugs Run the scripts every night because we knew from the data every morning when we come into work exactly what bugs they hit. We knew where every single incompatibility was. Yep. And it was faster for us to look at the data and figure out what the problem was and dive in and, and, and fix the bug if we could uh, than it was for them to enter the bug report. Oh, this is – I know we have talked about this on multiple times on uh, before we actually even started talking about modern testing. Right. It is absolutely my belief that the best way for testers right now to write automation is write the automation as load generators. Yes. And yes. do their validation from the product telemetry. Let the telemetry be the oracle. Yes. And I've always said, in fact, this may even be in how we test software at Microsoft. The oracle is the hardest part to write. The part that figures out whether the test passed or failed. Let the telemetry figure out what's going on. Yeah, uh, it's much easier because what I often ended up doing was, I mean, I remember having a whiteboard conversation in 1997 to discuss whether I could use Git Pixel to test Set Pixel, and I thought, and what I ended up, you know, ta- at least whiteboarding, but never doing was we whiteboarded out basically an implement a, a new implementation of Git Pixel to test Set Pixel, and and luckily, even in my naivety, was smart enough to think that was stupid. Uh, and you know why? Because it was stupid. Yes, because it was. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Let me read you. This is actually, it's interesting you brought up that tweet because uh, to read to me, because I don't know if you saw this tweet from me last week where I said. I did see something relevant. Just because a team relies on customer data to understand or evaluate customer value or quality, it doesn't mean that the team is relying on that customer to test the product. To the people who keep saying the quota part of that sentence, which is the last part, stop saying that. Then someone said, analytics are great, but they don't reduce the need to verify correct system under test behavior before shipping, unless your software doesn't matter much to people, like a free game on your phone. And I said, actually, in a lot of cases, example, web services, it's much more efficient if my monitors detect changes and reject new code appropriately than if I took the time to verify correct behavior before shipping. Yeah. And the reply I got back was, how is it more efficient to break customers? All the information is available to you before shipping. You just have to look and be smart about looking. What services do you ship broken? And all kinds of – the point I want to focus on there is no, you wait, don't wait, wait. have all the information available to you. You, you don't know how the customer is going to use your product. You could never know that. And to quote Eric Reese, show me a product that ships with zero bugs and I'll show you a product that shipped far too late. Brent, react. you will not be able to show Eric Reese a product that shipped with zero bugs. Number one, period. 
right? I'm sorry. Even even you know the simplest stupid tic tac toe app, I can guarantee you it shipped with bugs, right? The and the reason why, and I bet you the developer knew it. The reason why is because they made a decision. These bugs don't matter. <gasps> oh my God! Right. Really? Shipping a yeah. bug. Um, so the Google thing. So here's the secret. Here's the secret. Customers want their problems solved, and they want the least amount of time spent on friction due to bugs. Okay. So code paths <laughs> that customers don't use. Guess what? They don't care. It's not shipping a bug does not mean the customer is broken. I know, I know, I know. This reminds me actually, I gave a presentation on metrics well, at least 10 years ago, if not longer. And one of the joke slides I made was a, a this is back when product is, I can tell how old it was because I remember I had a mock up of a product box when you used to buy software in boxes. Yep. And for the bullet points, they had like bullet points of features, like, you know, twice as fast as our competition, whatever. I wrote like a, a bunch of stuff customers don't care about, like over 20,000 test cases run, 76% code coverage. No, customers don't give a crap about that. Stop thinking that customers give a shit about your testing effort. They don't. They don't care about your testing effort. They want their problem solved. Yes, God, and just get out of the mindset. I, I don't know why people think that, again, this was 10 years ago. The so other, back then when test last uh, software and functional test teams were much more common, still, they didn't, customers don't care what the testing effort was as long as the software allows them to solve their problems without making them want to throw their computer against the wall. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> right. The reason why in the old days... We would do all of this testing up front is because we didn't have the ability to react. Right. We, Today we, we do. Right. We had we we and, would wait. We, I mean, the ability to react was wait for the bug reports to come in from the enterprise customers and then eventually build a service pack. Right. Or a hot fix. <laughs> or right. yeah, if important, a hot fix. I mean, um Duh. and here what I'm essentially saying is treat every release as a hotfix. Yeah. The, um, ship frequently, ship small, look at the data to, to describe to you where to go next. Let's get back on track here. I see you're referring to your notes, so we're, we're of one mind. So the, the angry part is over for now. So the key... It's not over. No, no, no. The key why is the data tells you where to focus. Yes. And as we've talked about many times before, speed is what's important in today's world. Mm -hmm. If you want to compete, you need speed. Now, caveat, just like everything else, we're saying this is the general rule. Um, there are exceptions, right? Even, even in your current product, whatever it may be, there's going to be a set of, hey, even in a small uh, flight environment, 
Like with continuous integration, you're shipping the product constantly. I still recommend flight rings where yeah. you're looking at monitors and then you, you, you then slowly widen the number of customers that can get it. Let's yeah. move on and talk about a little about a little looking at the clock. What is, how does the modern tester lead a team to do this? Like, like how, do you, how do you make your team use data in a way that, that closes gaps? So we, we did episode 82. Yes, and that was actually a good prequel. So at this yeah. point, you could pause, go listen to 82 and go, oh, that's a good idea. Huh. So the how is actually covered really well in 82. You're right. It, it is in terms of evaluating um, your 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 product hypotheses and the, and that's what's important like we would rather test focus on how to improve the business how to improve let's say the value or the revenue of the business rather than what they're accustomed to which is how to reduce the cost mm-hmm. okay but that said you know um I don't know that any test team would ever do this. I think it would be really freaking smart for test teams to do this. But then, so once their product ships, so let's say they want to go through and do the prescriptive and preventative testing model. Once the, um, now go back and look at the data and try to evaluate how much of your time was wasted. How much of your time did you spend <laughs> testing in that, uh, testing a feature that got three users uh, still you know go look at the place that got a thousand users and see what problems they're having because <laughs> that's probably what's more important but if you go back and you go what missed if you take the product telemetry and say hey where did the uh, so let's let's pretend well actually you're a test director okay so our quality director so yeah, because I don't care about testing; I care about quality. Yes. So, but you still, and I don't know if it's changed, but as of what was it a year ago when I came and presented to your team, right? You had testers. Sure. Okay. From a management point of view, you're accountable for where your team invests its time. Now, yes. I, uh, your philosophy is to sort of delegate those decisions, but ultimately you hold the accountability, f- right? Because you made a decision to delegate those decisions. Sure, right? no, de- I'll not disagree. Um, it'd be worthwhile to go. Okay, where did your investments pay off? Right. So if you had a month long test pass that was scheduled. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I just I just threw no, up that, all over the conference room table. It's hyper. Never never again in my life would I do something like that. How, how dare you even mention that? Yeah. Um, you may continue. All right. It's worthwhile looking at the data and then, okay, so maybe maybe you're going to go down, down this 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 path, right? Maybe we've opened your eyes a little bit to, hey, there is a better, smarter way. Maybe you're in a position where you're like, hey, how do I convince my executives? Right, the data helps you make this transition as well. Sure. You go, look, you know what? I don't think this is the right way. I don't think this is the efficient way for us to deliver quality software. I think we need to get continuous integration going. I think we need to get. I did the data, right? 
this month-long test pass costs our business, uh, depending on the size of business, like it wouldn't be uncommon in, um, for a month-long test pass to cost well over a million dollars just in payroll, let alone hardware costs, right? And look, we got three customer clicks on this feature, right? I don't think we're using our resources efficiently. Um, the other thing is customer, it is not true that shipping bugs to customers is breaking the customer. It is also not true that it's a violation of some unwritten test law. Right? Also true. In, in the modern testing thing, we want devs to be held accountable for code correctness. We want QA to be held accountable for the quality culture mm-hmm. and the delivery of quality. And it is definitely not the case that if – I could see someone responding to this effect. is like, hey, if just one customer hits the bug, then it's a big you know, catastrophic problem. Catastrophic problems are things like customer does something and it deletes their data store, mm-hmm. right? Or it, it corrupts their OS or it publishes their credit card uh, numbers to the dark web. These are catastrophes and you uh, it is absolutely true that you should still continue to prevent those, that type of code from going out into the wild. But a lot of the times, the, the product hypothesis is wrong. Uh, we've, we have talked on multiple occasions that who values your product often isn't even – like in a, in a V1 situation, this is very often the case. Who values your product is often not the customer you're targeting. Yeah, and – Again, for the third time probably on this podcast, we'll refer you to chapter eight of the Lean Startup with the pivot or persevere chapter with all the different kinds of pivots you may make based on what you learn from your customer about how they use the product. You learn from the data who your customers really are. And what's important to them. Sure. Completely agree. Now, going into into data, I, I'll, I'll add... You know, one one caveat, right? Once you go into the data, there's a whole rich rule infrastructure on on this, right? Privacy, you can go too far. I think once you start getting into the data world, I think we need to start talking about ethics. Yeah. Right? Um, we want, from a quality world, we want to benefit the business by making our customers happier. Doing things with the data that they generate that, if they knew about it, wouldn't make them happier is a likely ethical problem. Yeah. Um, but there are other requirements, and I, we know, you know, we uh, GDPR, government requirements. So going into the data space does come with its own uh, bureaucracy. But it is vastly better, particularly when you combine it with the other principles we talked about, the theory of constraints, um, continuous integration. It ends up being a less risky and a much better way of, of building 
product quality. Mm -hmm. Let me, uh, our conversation so far reflects a lot on web services and how we can ship multiple times a day and get this data very quickly and hypothesis driven. I want to talk a little bit about how these things apply to slower shipped products. Uh, I don't think there's much of anything that ships every three years anymore. Nope. But if you're a product that ships, I mean, there is download fatigue from customers, even with apps, if they're seeing updates every day for your app, although it can happen in an area in if you're having some bad bugs coming in. But uh, there's a level of fatigue or ship. There's a level of download fatigue users can go through. So aside from that, let's say you're going to ship your product every two months. Two weeks. It's okay. Every two weeks. Thank you. You may have a brand new feature you want to get out because customers really need this. And it's really easy for people to sort of hand wave around solving a customer problem by just saying, a customer asked for this. They got to have it. I got to get it to them. I'm going to ship it. And I say, great, ship it to them. Do you have, how do you know if they're going to like it? We're going to call them and ask them. Yeah. I would say if you're shipping every two weeks or especially if you're shipping every three months, but if you're going to ship something new because you think it solves a customer problem, you better damn well have the data to help you figure that out. I think... Well, you may not be able to... So on the data front, right? Sure. Call the customer. That's the data point. Um, uh, another common thing is is either a proactive or a reactive survey. Sure. Sure. Just understand that both of these things are considered to be very low-quality data. Yes. And the point I'm getting to is, sure, all this stuff works. And a lot of the examples you see from talks on the internet and articles are around shipping web services or websites, things that can ship and update very, where you can react very, very quickly. But the point I want to make is even if you have something that can't react very, very quickly – you still need to use, and you're better served to rely on that data to help you understand much, much more about customer usage, customer quality, customer experience. Right, and the other thing I find, um, we started the podcast off with this sort of concept, and I find that people take a, a, uh, take a strong stand on, on a principle basis. So for example, you know, shipping bugs to customers is, you know, apparently uh, just natively evil, right? Um, but even if you're in the situation where you, where you only ship once every three months, that doesn't mean you have to accept that that's the way it should be the next time we ship, right? There are always ways to improve this uh so for example i i my phone is uh, an android and i've noticed that there are two different sort of update models there is the um there there appears to be a model where an app will indicate it needs to be updated and android will will just silently handle that update for me but there also appears to be a model where the app itself, you launch the app, and it says, hey, I need to be updated. And it didn't signal to the Google app management system 
um, to do the update for me. Right. Um, that in place app, that in app update, that irritates me. It should. Right. The one where the app or the update happens, maybe you tell me after the update that, hey, I updated. Right. I got one of these this morning. It said 14 apps were updated. So, oh, cool. Yeah. Then my, uh, but then for me, it seems like four out of five of the times I have to do the in-app update, it's then a Wi-Fi required. Oh, I haven't. And actually, I've never seen that one. So uh, I would imagine it happens when the app needs an update, but the Google Store hasn't propagated the update yet. Yeah. So in that particular case, if I were an app developer, and let's say it was Google's problem, if it wasn't Google's problem, then I would I would be looking at our code and going, okay, how do we make it Google's problem? Because it is a better user experience, in my humble opinion, to just let Google manage the updates. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but if it if it is already a Google problem, and so maybe maybe Google only does the update you know once a day, or does that check um, once a day, and and the app just updated three seconds ago. Right, the app is telling me, "Hey, I need to be updated." That situation, what I would do is 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 talk to Google and say, "Hey, how do we make this experience more seamless?" Right, the, the you're right. Customers have update fatigue, but what I'm saying is that doesn't mean you stand on the principle and say we don't do updates. No, right. we figure out how to do the updates and re- remove the fatigue. Absolutely. And you see all kinds of apps do that. It's pretty common now for apps to say, hey, I have an update, or to just download silently and install patch-style updates in the background. I think that's totally expected, and it's, and it's okay. Unless you're on Windows and every damn single one of them requires a reboot. And that's annoying too. Yeah. Got to get my Windows jab in. Okay. Uh, let me summarize. Data is important. It, it means you actually care more about the customer, not less about them. It's actually a more efficient way to evaluate uh, the customer's perception of value or customer's uh, yeah, value of the product. And one thing to bring up here is people ask me, what's different about modern testing versus agile testing? And it's a lot the same. It's a lot about whole team delivery. One of the things we really call out that's uh, not called out explicitly, or at least not that much in uh, the agile testing books, is this use of data and how important it is. Because you and I and people who believe modern testing principles and a lot, a lot, a lot of engineering teams around the world realize that data is critical to understanding and using data is critical to understanding customer quality and production. Using data, so you just made a point, using data, uh, I forget how you say it, but something along the lines of it is not actually harming the customer, it is actually better for the customer. Right. Right. And and just because it allows you to scale up your, let's say it's a pure traditional testing um, facility. It allows you to scale up your testing resources on the things that actually matter to the customer. Yes. 
Make, it, can, uh, it can help you target your testing. Yes. Absolutely. It, it, uh, yeah, and one way, maybe let me add this metaphor, um, we'll, if you have time, is in the old days, way back in the 20th century, we may look at code coverage and we'd figure out where we had missing tests. And we still do this today in our unit tests and go make sure we have tests for the areas that don't have coverage. We can use data in a similar way to understand if you look at customer usage patterns as a method of coverage, you can look and see where they're using the product and make sure we have, and actually that may help you target, okay, customers are really using this 30% of the product. Let's go invest some of that time-intensive intellectual exploratory testing there. How about this? How about it? You set up an experiment that routes 10% of the traffic to a co-coverage instrumented build. Yes, I've done that before. Right, and then you compare the co-coverage of your test suite to the co-coverage coming from your usage suite. Yep, fantastic. Now, that means now you have a decision, right? Okay, should you solidify where, where there's existing co-coverage or do you fill the holes? Right, so if you see mm -hmm. that, that, oh, this one, one class is just used like freaking crazy. But there's a couple of lines of code that don't have testing, right? You, maybe you, you bolster up that unit test before you, you cover the test suite that that usage doesn't even hit. Right. <laughs> Matter of fact, I would, I'll tell you what I would do in that particular case. I'd be like, hey, do we have this feature turned on? Right, there's this whole library that's not even touched. First off, is it is it actually instrumented? Did we screw up when we deployed this thing? But assuming it is, right, what is this code doing? Is it turned on? If so, okay, there's something wrong with it because customers can't find it. Customers aren't using it. Let's figure out if actually this is something we should continue with. Yeah, that's an example of we're going to look at the data and, and prove or disprove our hypotheses on how we think the product works and it's being used. Yeah. The, um, you know, another way of making higher quality code here, I'm talking about code correctness, another way of making high quality code. One of my employees says, uh, and, I, and I like this, the, the difference between a a four-star and a five-star developer. A five-star developer doesn't add code. They remove it. That would be one attribute. Yeah. All right. Okay. <laughs> I hope we have beat our opinions and thoughts on data and its importance into your heads. And next time we'll cover the, to some, not all, slightly controversial uh, principle number seven. Okay. <laughs> I am still Alan. And I'm Brent. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Good morning, I see